So the town of Centralia is a small town in the middle of Pennsylvania. Just curious, anyone heard of Centralia, Pennsylvania? One person. All right, Renee, I'm very intrigued now. We'll have to talk about that later. The town has a strange history. Um, It was an active coal mining town until the early 60s. Then in 1962, volunteer firefighters were tasked with cleaning up the town before Memorial Day events. And so they they went to the town landfill, which happened to be in, in an abandoned mining pit connected to mining tunnels under the town. And the way they cleaned up the landfill was by lighting it on fire, right? Let's, let's burn it and bury it. So they lit it on fire, they buried it, and they moved on. I thought that was that. Until a few years later, people in this town started noticing something. Strange things. The, the ground temperature in certain places was extremely unusually hot. 900 degrees Fahrenheit in certain places. Uh, Snow would melt very quickly in the winter. Smoke began billowing up out of certain spots in the ground. And even poisonous gases were seeping into basements, large potholes randomly forming around the town very quickly. And what happened was is that fire, they believe, that was set in 1962 slowly crept through the town for years unnoticed until it started coming to the surface. And once these things started happening, the town actually became very divided over the issue. Some said, well, it's really not that big of a deal, which is kind of hard to imagine. It's just a fire burning under our town. No big deal. And then others saying, no, we need to advocate and get the government involved, and we need help and finances, and we need to fix this problem. Every town was issued a government-issued meter in the basement to test for poisonous gases and warn people to evacuate if they needed to. The government has since drilled over 1,800 holes in the town in an attempt to to locate and extinguish the fire to no avail. And eventually, everyone left by the mid-80s, and the town is now abandoned. But here's what's crazy. The fire is still burning to this day. And environmentalists believe if, if this is left unchecked, it could go on for another century Now, as we consider the topic of race and ethnicity, especially in our nation today and in the church, I can't help but think of Centralia as a a parable of race relations, especially if we consider what's happened over the last 14 months. We've seen the worst health crisis since the Spanish flu in 1918, COVID-19. Many of the issues with COVID-19 are divided along ethnic lines. We've seen, for example, racism and prejudice against Asian ethnicities in response to the coronavirus. We've seen one of the most contentious elections in our history with voting blocks divided as they have been for a long time, but even more so now along racial lines. We've seen social unrest in the streets in response to the the killings of black men and women like George Floyd, Ahmed Aubrey, and Breonna Taylor. These things are coming up to the surface for us. But these fires, so to speak, aren't new. If we look at our our own history and if we look at even go as far back as the Bible, God's word shows us this kind of division 
has been burning ever since Adam and Eve rejected God and sought to exalt self, blaming one another. Friends, this is the first official sermon on ethnicity and race in our church, but we've talked about this through Genesis, have we not? We saw in Genesis through the early chapters that the rejection of God is never merely vertical. Us and God, there's always a horizontal relationship that's damaged as well. And we've been trying in vain ever since to sort of drill holes in this thing and try and and fix this fire or pretend it's not even there. And friends, the reality is the Bible doesn't allow us to do either one of those things. We can't ignore the topic of race and ethnicity because the unifying of diverse peoples for the glory of God is a major theme of the Bible. We're not just talking about a text here and a passage here. We're talking about a united theme of Scripture. So we can't ignore it. To do so is to ignore the Word of God. Nor does the Bible allow us or tell us to go to worldly insufficient attempts to solve this issue of racism. Why? Because a world that denies God and the reality of sin can provide no remedy for such evils. At least no lasting, ultimate remedy. Did you hear what Mandy just read? For he himself is our peace. So as we consider this topic, praise be to God for his ever-relevant word to us on this. As As we look at Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 this morning, we're seeing the Apostle Paul look at the greatest ethnic division of his day, I would say of the Bible, and directly apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to this racial divide between Jew and Gentile. And here's what he's showing. Here's the passage in a sentence. Paul's showing us how the cross kills racial hostility and forms a diverse, unified people to display Christ to a watching world. And as he does that, he's He's calling us to join in to this vision. And so as we walk through this passage this morning and seek to apply it to our own situation, we're going to see three movements here. First, we're going to see a hopeless separation, verses 11 and 12. Second, we're going to see a peaceful reconciliation in verses 13 through 19. And then last, we're going to see a unified transformation in verses 20 through 22. And then at the very end, we're going to say, okay, what, what do I do with this? What are some things I can do as I walk out of here this morning? So let's jump in. First, we see in this text a hopeless separation. Look at verse 11. Therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now verse 11 begins with therefore, and when that happens, we need to go back and see, consider what Paul has just said in the previous passage. This is a famous chapter of Ephesians. He's just told the Ephesian Christians of this glorious gospel of salvation by grace alone. Listen to 2, 8, and 10. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It's a free gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's what Paul's saying. Because you've been recreated by the grace of Jesus Christ, you now walk in these good works. Because you've been redeemed by God, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, vertical. Here's how you're to live with one another, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, horizontal. And so he tells this group of Christians, the Gentiles, in verse 11, to remember that at one time they were separated from Christ. They were without hope. Now, who are the Gentiles? This word simply means nations. And when it's used in the Bible, and the way Paul's using it here, it's referring to those who were not a part of the nation of Israel. But there's, there's more here to just an ethnic description. There's also a religious component. See, Paul goes on to say that these Gentiles were also called the uncircumcision. And again, this is not just a a description as if the Jews were circumcised and the Gentiles were not circumcised, everyone else was not circumcised. It is that, but this was a negative derogatory term referring to those who are outside of the covenant of God. If you've maybe you've read the story of David and Goliath, that's a favorite, right? Do you remember what David says when he hears Goliath mocking God? 1 Samuel 17, 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of the living God? And he's saying this is someone who is not a part of the people of God. And by the time, it, by, by the time Paul is writing this, it had been twisted in such a hateful way. And so Paul says these Gentiles were also separated from Christ. They're alienated from the people of God and without hope. He paints a very bleak picture here for the nations, for those who are not Israelites. You see, God chose, we'll see, we, we hit pause in Genesis to do this series, we'll pick up with Abraham, and God chose to bring about salvation through a nation that he built from a man named Abraham. And the outward sign of this promise to Abraham was circumcision, this cutting away of the foreskin for males. And they were to be set apart from the surrounding nations. And from this nation, this one nation, would come the Savior of the world. And Paul is saying right here, remember, you were not a part of this. You were without hope. Now what about Israel? Well, here's what happened as we consider the nation of Israel. God's people, Israel, they lost sight of the purpose of this covenant blessing. They became proud and arrogant and they failed to remember that God didn't choose Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob because they were better. He didn't build one nation or people group to be superior to another. That wasn't the purpose. In fact, if we go back to Genesis 12, 2 and 3, God tells Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse you. And in you, Abraham, in you, Israel, in you, the Jews, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was the purpose of the covenant. 
So while the nation of Israel has this unique purpose in the history of salvation, they don't have superiority to other peoples. In fact, Paul hints at this in verse 11. It's very easy to miss this, but notice what he says. He says, you were called, Gentiles, you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Then he adds this phrase, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, why does Paul say that? Here's what he's hinting at. He gives this critical remark. He's saying, you were separated from God, Gentiles, but listen, my fellow Jews, they had the outward sign. They had the outward religion, but that was man's work. The work of God was far from their hearts. They had possession of the promises of God, but they often ignored them. So Paul addresses this major divide between Jew and Gentile, but he says, listen, nobody is without sin here. Nobody's without need of God's grace. And so there grew between Jews and Gentiles this strong hatred. One extra biblical law, for example, said that it was unlawful to help a Gentile woman give birth because in doing so, you would help bring another heathen into the world. The Jews often referred to Gentiles as dogs. To dine with a Gentile, which again, remember, this is anyone who's not a Jew, it was considered unlawful. The Gentile Roman historian Livy on the other side of it, responded with hatred toward the Jews as well. And he said, we wage a truceless war against other races. He's referring to the Jews as well. Think about Jesus when he comes onto the scene. His most famous parable, the parable of the good Samaritan. He's talking to a Jewish lawyer, helping him understand who his neighbor is. And he tells a story in which a man is by the wayside in trouble and three righteous people pass him by, Israelites. But who does Jesus make the hero of the story? A Gentile Samaritan. He says, that is your neighbor. And for him to say that was the worst possible enemy you could imagine for the Jews. When we consider the political landscape of the New Testament, it just adds fuel to this fire. Not only is there this, this ethnic division, but remember, the Jews were under Roman Gentile rule. So it's not only religious, it's not only ethnic, it's also political. It seems completely and totally hopeless that these two groups of people would be reconciled in any way. What could put out this raging division? What could put out this fire? And friends, likewise, we could look at the, the division in our day. We can look at the news cycle. And we can feel hopeless. And we can feel so overwhelmed, especially those of us who are in the majority, that we just don't even know how to respond. And we should, we should be heartbroken when we hear report after report of unarmed black men and women being killed in the streets. We should be appalled by increased acts of violence against the Asian community in response to just ignorant, hateful stigmas around the coronavirus. Racism touches, listen, it touches everything from prison reform to the unborn, which we'll talk about next week, from our nation's history to our present. 
it can seem overwhelming and helpless. And what makes this even more difficult is that it's evident in the church. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said in the Civil Rights Movement, the most segregated hour in America is the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning, referring to the gathering of the church. Now, we hear that and we say, well, surely it's gotten better since then, right? Well, yes, absolutely. In God's grace, it has certainly progressed. But do you, do you know that a recent study showed that over 80% of churches are made up of predominantly one ethnic group in our country? 67% say they're fine with that. And what's even more discouraging is 33% say they're opposed to taking more efforts to pursue ethnic diversity in the church. Friends, if these things are true, that means we are listening far more to the hopelessness of the world than the word of God. You see, Paul paints a bleak picture here. He, he tells it like it is for Jew and Gentile. But the beacon of light that is Christ, will shine brighter. Do you see he's already hinted at that in verse 11? Look at the past tense of his words. Remember, you were at one time separated. You were without hope. You were at odds with one another. You were alienated, but here's the hint, not anymore. Not anymore. And so if God could, as we're about to see, if, if he could overcome this real separation between Jew and Gentile that he instituted for a time by choosing this nation of Israel to bring about salvation of the world, how much more can he, in his grace, overcome the sinful separations and divisions that we create among us? So yes, there is a hopeless separation here, but it only seems hopeless. Because into this hopelessness, the gospel brings a peaceful reconciliation. That's number two. We, we see a peaceful reconciliation. Look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's just stop and think about that phrase for a minute. What a glorious phrase. But now. Paul's already done this in Ephesians 2. Back in verse 4, he painted this picture of how you and I, apart from Christ, are under the wrath of God, alienated from God. Then he says, but God entered in. The gospel overcame your sinfulness. And here he says, but now Christ, Jesus, in him, you once who were far off, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And we see two relationships here. Again, we see that vertical plane and that horizontal. First, God redeems us to himself through the blood of Christ. Then, he reconciles us together as a people across ethnic lines. And notice how nearness and peace are put together here. Look again at the end of verse 13. How are we reconciled to God? By the blood of Christ. By his substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? Well, Christ died in our place where we deserve to die for our sin. And because he's the sinless sacrifice for our sins, he paid the debt we owed. He atoned for it. And as a result, those who place their faith in the crucified and risen Savior are brought near to God and are at peace with him. That's the gospel. And friends, listen to me. This 
is the most important reconciled relationship in our lives. This is first and foremost. For those of you here this morning who don't believe in Christ, the future for you is one of hopeless separation. But God, but now in Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. There is peace with God. There's reconciliation for you if you would repent, which means to turn from your sin and self-rule to God and his rule over your life, to believe in Christ. And you are reconciled to God. That's the gospel. But notice, in the very same breath, Paul immediately goes on to apply this to reconciliation, to ethnic division. Immediately applies the gospel to it. We're reconciled not just to God, but to one another. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And I love this. Notice Paul doesn't say, listen, Jesus goes and gets peace from elsewhere and he brings it. He says, no, he is our peace. And you who believe in him, you are also therefore people of peace. Christ's body was broken on the cross so that the wall of ethnic and racial hostility may be broken down between us. And so many of us have a hard time of just so personalizing the gospel. It's just me and God, it's just me and God, it's just me and God. Yes, absolutely. The gospel is absolutely personal. But do you notice all throughout the New Testament, the way the Apostle Paul deals with racial division in the church is when people get saved, he just puts them all together and he says, here's how the gospel is going to help you work through all that. You don't have to go elsewhere. The gospel is ever relevant to this issue. It breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. Now the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that there was an inscription on the the wall of the outer courtyard of the temple which separated Gentile worshipers from coming in. And according to Josephus, this is extra biblical, but he says that inscription said any Gentile who crosses in is going to be responsible if someone takes their life because they're not supposed to cross that wall. Now, we're not sure if that's exactly what Paul is alluding to here. He may or may not be. But regardless, it's a vivid illustration of a very real separation between Jew and Gentile. And Paul, who is a Jew, is writing to his Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's saying, Jesus broke that down. It's not there anymore. We are one. Verse 15. Here's what else he did. He abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and he preached to you who were far off, Gentiles, and he preached to you who were near, Jews, because all of you needed the gospel. That was my addition there at the end of verse 17. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So Paul is saying the, the ritual laws of Leviticus that separated is, Israelites from Gentiles, those no longer apply. Christ has fulfilled those in his life and death. He is now building up this unified people, this one new man. He's talking about the church. 
And in this new people, there is no room for hostility. There's no room for division. Now, clearly unity is a theme of this passage. And we may ask, and many people have asked, of the New Testament, well then, does that mean God is flattening racial and ethnic distinctions? Maybe you've heard the phrase before, colorblind. I don't see color. Maybe you've heard someone say, I don't see color when I look at other races. And I, I think I, I understand the intention behind that, that comment and that concept. Many people who say that are saying, well, I don't judge others by the color of their skin or their ethnicity, which is true. But there's no need to ignore skin color, ethnic origin, or cultural background. In fact, not only is there no need to ignore it, it should be celebrated. These are beautiful things. When you look at a Rembrandt, that's an artist, by the way, you don't say, oh, you know what, that's beautiful. I don't see color. I just see, the, I just see the, the art. No, Rembrandt painted it in color. It's part of the beauty of the design. In the same way, the diversity of ethnicities in our world is a God-given and beautiful thing. That said... This is so important. We need to consider our modern understanding of the idea of race in light of what the Bible teaches. This is so important for us to understand. According to the scriptures, there is only one race. The human race made in the image of God. Acts 17.26, Paul preaching to pagan unbelievers says this, And he made from one man... Every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. The emphasis of scripture is on this common unity and continuity of, of humans. This modern idea of, of race was introduced in 1684 by a French physician named Francois Bernier who sought to categorize the people of the world into four groups based on skin color and physical characteristic, and of course, location. And in doing so, he also, even though subtly at first, somehow, in his mind, the Europeans always came out as superior. And these categories grew and expanded, and, and shifted, and they really took hold in the 17th and 18th centuries, which lo and behold, consider that's when colonial expansion and the expansion of slavery are prominent. You, you see the danger in these arbitrary classifications? Tabidi Anyabwile writes this, he said, race, which starts as a pseudo-scientific classification, eventually gets deployed as a theory to explain human difference and human supremacy, an explanation needed to justify the conquering of people groups around the world. He goes on to say the story of the Bible tells is one of continuity, not discontinuity, which race at least implies. It's more proper to speak of ethnicities rather than races. This is the way the Bible speaks of our common ancestry and of our ethnic diversity we seek. It's a diversity within the same species, if you will. In fact, genetic science has proven that there are no subspecies in mankind. There's not enough genetic variants to meet the tests of science. 
Now put all that together. I think you can get a biblical theology of race from these two passages of Scripture. Acts 17 and Ephesians 2. Acts 17, God created every nation, every people group, every ethnicity from Adam and everyone is in his image, Ephesians 2, and he is now through Christ recreating a new people from all nations. That's a biblical theology of race and ethnicity. Now don't mishear me, whether or not you use the word race is really not the issue. It's making sure we understand what God teaches about our common humanity. Now consider what this means for us as we encounter ethnic injustice in our world. That means we see every person, regardless of color, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of background, as created by God. They are either in need of Christ or they're in Christ. We're to see ethnicity, yes, as a part of our identity, God-given identity, but there is a deeper bond that unites us. Being in the image of God. And any violence, any ethnic injustice, whether in the heart of man or at the hands of man, is an affront to God and his gospel. So friends, those of you who are in the minority and have been on the receiving end of racism, whether it's subtle stereotypes or covert words of prejudice, or what just may sound like the deafening silence from others, know this, ethnic prejudice is anti-gospel. It is an affront to the character of God. And it should break our hearts. And for those of us in the ethnic majority, which in our country, those of us who are white, we must align with God on this. It can be so easy for us to put these things out of sight, out of mind, or anytime we hear something, we say, well, what about this? Or what about, listen, scripture is clear. Racism is a gospel issue. Therefore, it's an issue for us. And to love our neighbors well, we must speak loudly and clearly on this. Now consider what this means also for the church, the people of God. This is the application that Paul's giving in Ephesians 2. This is the focus of what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you two people who hated each other, God has made you one. Meaning, there's a greater identity than that we have than our ethnicity and the color of our skin. You heard Josh give that commercial for union with Christ in the upcoming study. Our identity is first and foremost in Christ. Look what Paul says in verse 19. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. I love that. He uses a bunch of illustrations there in one sentence. I just want to consider that last one. Household. That's a family picture. You've been adopted into the diverse family of God. That means you don't just have a new father. You have new brothers and sisters from the nations. I love how Trillia Newbell applies this in her book. United, Captured by God's Division for Diversity. Great book. You could probably read it in an afternoon. It's sub 100 pages. She says this. 
Racial reconciliation is not only possible, it's a must because we are the very family of God. That's astounding. We're created equally. When Christ calls us to himself, he does not look at who we are in terms of ethnicity, nor does he call us because of who we are by any other way except that we were dead and in need of new life. As a result, here's for us, church, our churches should be the most gracious environments on the planet. More than any other place, the church should be more open and excited about having people unlike themselves. And this gracious environment must begin in our hearts. We have to look to Jesus and ask for grace to emulate his grace. Friends, Christ has brought a peaceful reconciliation to us. Does your heart emulate that gracious environment of the gospel toward those who are different from you? And then lastly, we see a unified transformation. As we come to the end of this passage, verse 20, this new people, he says, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is forward looking here. I love this. Remember that question at the beginning? Is there any hope for these fires of of racial ethnic injustice? Will these fires ever be put out? And Paul ends this section with a beautiful hope-giving vision of God's work. He's telling us that Christ is building up this diverse church upon a solid foundation. The foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, what does that mean? Well, believers are built up upon the teaching of the apostles and prophets. Essentially, the, the divinely inspired teaching, the word of God, divine revelation of God. Faithful churches... This sounds so simple. Faithful churches proclaiming the word, celebrating the diversity of God's kingdom, and centering on Christ who is the ultimate foundation, the cornerstone. That's how Christ builds his diverse church. And that church upholds that vision to a watching world that doesn't know what to do. The civil rights activist John M. Perkins, who has been the recipient of many violent injustices throughout the civil rights movement. He's been in this fight for 70, over 70 years as a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian. He's 91 years old now. And listen to what he recently wrote. He called this an admonishment to the next generation. And here's what he wanted to say. You might think he's going to tell you how to get involved in your community, which is important. You might think he's going to tell you what organizations you need to support. But here was his admonishment. Teach truth. Without truth, there can be no justice. And what is the ultimate standard of truth? It's not our feelings. It's not popular opinion. It's not what presidents or politicians say. God's word is the standard of truth. If we're trying harder to align with the rising opinions of our day than with the Bible, then we ain't doing real justice. That's the way he said it. Let me read that again. If we're trying harder to align with the rising opinions of our day, with whatever political party we lean more towards, with whatever we hear people saying on social media, if we're trying to align with those things more than the word of God, then we're not doing real justice. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying this foundation 
upon which God builds his church and tears down the wall of hostility is the word of God with Christ as the cornerstone. And in the place of this wall of hostility is this new people, this this messy but beautiful work in progress that will one day be fully transformed. And then he ends with this Trinitarian vision. In him, verse 22, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, there's going to come a day when the fires of racism will burn no more. All injustice will be done away with. And his dwelling place will be with us, his people, in perfection and fullness of diverse, multi-ethnic, joy-filled worship. That's the picture of heaven. Listen to Revelation 7. He says, after this I looked. This is forward-looking. This is what heaven's going to be like. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God saying amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. When we pray the Lord's prayer, let your kingdom come as it is in heaven. Let it be here in our church, in our community, as it is in heaven, Revelation 7-9 is in view. That's the vision. The closest thing I can think of this is back when the Red Sox used to win. You guys remember that? Back in 2018, what happens when they win the World Series? Everybody goes down. They get on those duck boats. They drive around the city, and everybody's pumped. Everybody's cheering, and everybody's wearing a Sox jersey, right? Right? You don't know the person next to you. They're black, white, they're from here, they're from there. They have different backgrounds. But everyone is unified saying, this is our team. This victory is ours. That's the picture of heaven we get. And friends, if we don't want that in our lives, if we don't want that for our church, if we don't want to hold this up to a watching world and say the gospel is the answer for this ethnic injustice, then we need to align our hearts with the truth of God's word. We need to repent and ask God to do that work in our hearts. And while we, while we long for that day, we don't, we don't do so just twiddling our thumbs. Don't mishear me here. I'm not saying all we do is preach the gospel. And we don't consider how to get involved in our community. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is we need the solid foundation of God's vision for ethnic harmony. harmony. And so in closing, I just want to give you... Four practical things to take away with. If you're like, just tell me what to do. I'm going to tell you what to do. All right? And then I'm going to keep track. I'm going to ask you next week if you did it. No, I'm just kidding. All right, number one. Let me just give you all four of them first. Pray, relate, learn, engage. Pray, relate, learn, and engage. The first thing, pray. Isaac Adams says when it comes to racial reconciliation, we must do more than pray, but we cannot do less. This includes prayers of confession. Pray pray Psalm 139. 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Friends, ethnic prejudice is not just an out there thing. It's an in here thing. Ask God to reveal what prejudices you may be harboring in your heart to those who are different from you. What stereotypes need to be broken down? How does your heart need to be informed by the gospel so that you can repent of those things? Search me, O God. Confess. Also, this includes prayers of lament, as we just did in our missional prayer. We're not very good at lamenting as an American church. We like to celebrate and be happy and joyful. But we're called to lament. These prayers are all over the Psalms, for example. What does it mean to lament? It means in prayer expressing genuine sorrow and pain, yet fixing our hope on God. So as we consider acts of racism, whether it's uh, something we see in our community or whether it's something in our own hearts or whether it's something we see on the news, something that's happening in our nation, we should weep with those who are weeping. We should lament those things. But we should also ask God to move. This includes asking God to execute his justice. Praise Psalm 7. Ask God to defend the cause of the oppressed and bring justice to the oppressor. So first, friends, we have to to pray. If you want to pray more, we pray once a month, the first Wednesday of every month on a Zoom call. Second, relate. Build relationships. Here's a question to ask. Do my relationships reflect the heavenly vision of the church? Look at your friendships and your hospitality. Does everyone look, talk, and act just like you? Be intentional about developing relationships, genuine friendships with people of of different ethnicities. Not so you can meet some quota or say, say, look at me. So you can reflect God's heart. Mark Vrogup writes, Don't wait for ethnic reconciliation to come to you. Be the initiator like Jesus was with you. Third, learn. So we've got pray, relate, learn. Here's a quick philosophy of learning for for Christians, whether it's racial injustice or anything else. Snack on good books, feast on the Bible. When I say learn, I don't mean go to the New York Times bestseller list, find all the books on race and read those. At least not first or second, third, or fourth. I mean, get God's vision of ethnicity in your bones. Return again and again to Ephesians 2. Study Revelation 7, 9 through 12. Look at Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Get grounded in the sufficient word of God on these things. Then, go read good books. We've got a stack of them we can recommend. Listen to podcasts. Learn how to understand differing views. Test them against the word of God. Be a Berean. I love this verse about the Bereans in Acts 17. Paul is preaching and these Jews, Acts 17, 11, are more noble, Luke tells us, than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness. They heard it and then they went to the scriptures examining it to see if these things were so. Friends, as we hear the world telling us so many things on this issue, we should be like Bereans. We should test it against the word of God and say, are these things true? And then lastly, engage. Engage. And more specifically, engage where you are. 
I think one of the reasons we're so overwhelmed by this is because we see things on the news and we see things happening in the world around us and we're so overwhelmed that we lose sight of the fact that God has sovereignly placed us in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our communities to be missionaries. So look at your own neighborhood. Look at your own city and prayerfully ask, what steps can I take to advocate for reconciliation? What's the demographic of my neighborhood, my street? How does the gospel propel me to engage? What policies are on the ticket for the the upcoming elections, local elections, state elections, all, all of those things? And how do they have bearing on these ethnic relationships in my community? And how is God calling me to act as a Christian? Friends, all of these things take, it takes work. But according to Ephesians 2, this is holy gospel work that God has called us to. And when we begin to prayerfully pursue these things as God's people in our communities, we we can trust that he's going to lead us and guide us as we seek to hold up this cross of Jesus Christ that kills ethnic hostility and forms a diverse, unified people to display his glory to a watching world. So let's by grace aim for it. Let's pray together.